0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness Have you ever had a meal with someone, maybe a group of friends, where uh, things got uncomfortable? Like maybe the conversation turned in a direction you weren't expecting it to. Maybe that hot-button political topic got brought up and quickly you realized there were a couple of people at the table who were at passionate but opposite sides of the coin and suddenly the banter went back and forth and everyone at the table started to hang their heads. Or, Or maybe you have... One of those friends who when you guys get together and share a meal with friends, they just love to throw that like one bomb into the conversation that just makes everybody kind of screech back. I used to have a friend in in Akron who always used to throw verbal bombs into situations that I'd be like, oh, like everybody would just kind of cringe. They knew it was coming at uh, some point. But all of us likely have experienced meals where things get uncomfortable. I mean, meals are sharing life together. So it's natural for us that there also would be some moments in the course of life where things get a little awkward and uncomfortable. And sometimes the uncomfortability of meals, and especially in those moments, can actually reveal and stir certain things up into our mind and hearts that we need to deal with that we might not normally want to or desire to actually discuss or talk about. Now think about this. If you were to have a meal with Jesus. Do you think that that would be a comfortable meal or an uncomfortable one? Do you think things would just be easy, coast on by, nice, pleasant, happy evening? Or do you think Jesus might be the sort of person who might drop a truth bomb here or there to just kind of disrupt the calming atmosphere? How do you imagine that it would be? Well, actually, when we look through the Gospels, we recognize that Jesus, in fact, engaged meals in both ways. But this morning, we're going to look at a meal where Jesus made a group of people very uncomfortable. But he did it with a supreme intention to reveal a key spiritual truth that I think is necessary for all of us, even today, to wrestle with. We're going to look at a meal where Jesus engaged a group to help them see that humility is essential for anyone to enjoy Jesus. Humility is essential for anyone to enjoy Jesus. So let's kind of jump into our text together, and then we're going to kind of unpack some key points about how Jesus shows this from uh, from Luke 14. So jump back in with me, Luke 14. it says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him, carefully. So set the context. It's Sabbath in the Jewish mindset. Sabbath is the last day of the week. It's a significant day of rest because God rested on the seventh day of creation. The Jews would rest, and because he commanded it, they would rest on the seventh day. And often to signify the beginning of Sabbath, they would gather together for a Sabbath meal. And the Sabbath meal was a significant part of the week. It's the way they initiated and began their day of rest. And oftentimes, they would Gather with family and friends. Sometimes people would host Sabbath dinners. In this case, someone's hosting a pretty prominent sabbath dinner he's noted as a ruler of the pharisees now we've engaged the pharisees in this series that we've been in soul food several times and but just to remind you the pharisees are a sect of judaism at the time of jesus who believed that what was necessary for the nation of israel to experience deliverance from rome and ultimately the bringing of god's messiah and kingdom was for them to be morally pure and so because of that, they held to a very strict interpretation of the Old Testament law rooted in the oral tradition of the rabbis. That was what they fundamentally believed. And they had significant influence among the people of Jesus's day. Apparently in this scene that we're looking at today, one of them holds also a pretty prominent position within not only the Pharisees, but the town. And he's invited Jesus along with a group of others to have dinner at at the beginning of the Sabbath. Now, as they invite Jesus in, it notes in verse 1 that they were watching him carefully. So they're paying attention. They're noting. But something significant begins to happen in verse 2. It says, Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. The text notes, it almost feels like it's suddenly, there's someone there who's out of place within the scenario. It's a man who's experiencing a pretty significant medical condition. Now, we don't usually use the word dropsy in our day. The word that we use for this medical condition in our day is the issue of edema. And edema is the what happens when your body for some reason begins to take on an excessive amount of fluid. So oftentimes people who have edema or dropsy, their cavity, their body cavity will begin to fill up with a sexative fluid that also moves into their limbs or extremities. If people have dropsy, often their limbs are swollen, their legs are swollen, their body cavity is swollen, um, they often appear bloated a lot of times, and they often experience a significant amount of pain. Now, in Jesus' day, somebody who was going through this significant medical condition was also considered unclean. They were often excluded from the normal day activities of Jewish life. Often, edema at the time was associated with gluttony and other issues, even though that's not the root cause of it. So, the scene. Jesus is at the dinner of this ruler of the Pharisees, and suddenly there's a man there who has this significant medical condition. And Jesus sees an opportunity to engage his guests. And this is where things start to get just a little bit uncomfortable. Look what he says in verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus raises a hot-button issue to the forefront of the dinner conversation. Now, this is actually an issue that Jesus has engaged already before with this same group of people. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus had healed someone on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees had challenged him on it, and Jesus had responded. So, But once again, he presents himself at a dinner. There's an opportunity for healing, and Jesus essentially uses it to look at everyone around him and say, hey, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I heal this guy? And in many ways, he forces them to ask the question, have you learned anything from me or not? Well, obviously not, because it says in verse 4, they remained silent. So they they don't say it's lawful. They don't say anything. They just sit there, dumbfounded at Jesus' question. So what does Jesus do? He heals him. I mean, Jesus is awesome, isn't he? Like, he shows up, he sees this guy, he heals him of his disease. Like, that's the sort of God and Savior that he is. But he's not done with the lesson or the uncomfortability yet. He says to them in response to healing him, verse 5, and he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Jesus takes the hot button issue and he begins to bring it even further to the forefront. Now, you might not naturally see that. We read this and we're like, this doesn't feel that controversial. But Jesus is actually bringing up a significant issue and challenging specifically this group on how they view and interpret the Old Testament law. By the words that Jesus uses in this phrase, he's actually drawing on two very specific Old Testament commands. The first one he's drawing on, we find in Deuteronomy 5, and it's God's command concerning the Sabbath. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 5.14. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. Now listen to these phrases. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. So, the first command in the Old Testament law remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't do any work on the Sabbath. But there's a second law that Jesus draws on from Deuteronomy chapter 22. Where God commands Israel, when you see your neighbor's donkey or ox fallen along the road, do not ignore it. Instead, you must be sure to help him get the animal on its feet again. Wait, so which law is right? Is it right to rescue my neighbor's donkey or is it right to not do any work on the Sabbath? What Jesus highlights here is that these Pharisees were conveniently using one law to judge Jesus by, don't work on the Sabbath, while ignoring a secondary law which gave the command to care for people who are in dire circumstances. And he essentially wants to highlight, you guys are failing to see the deeper reality of God's grace and wisdom. You only highlight what you want to see in order to populate your sense of self-righteousness. His point's clear. They're willing to ignore the first rule and follow the second rule when, what does he say? When it comes to themselves. Well, if your son or your ox falls in, won't you do something about it? And naturally, he assumes. They would say, yes, of course we would do something about it. No good parent would just leave their kid in a fallen pit. But in doing so, he highlights the reality that they've misunderstood the aspect of God's law completely. And how do they respond in verse 6? And they could not reply to these things. In this, Jesus shows us kind of the first key point that I want you to see from the passage. And it's namely this that pride keeps us from enjoying Jesus. While Jesus steps onto the scene, does an incredible work of healing a man suffering from a medical affliction, these Pharisees throughout it are judgmental, unresponsive, they're not even excited. Like I would hope if someone came into our congregation today and they were miraculously healed, we wouldn't all sit here in silence. That'd be a pretty poor response. So how can these guys experience a healing from Jesus and they just sit there and don't do anything? Well, it's because their pride, their sense of self-righteousness actually keeps them from Jesus. We see the Pharisees' pride throughout this first section and Jesus puts it on display by the way he engages and questions them. What does pride look like in these Pharisees? Well, the first thing it looks like is it looks like skepticism and unbelief. I mean, the text notes from the very beginning that they were watching Jesus carefully. From the moment they invited him to dinner, they didn't do so to truly understand or receive who he was. They did to show him up. Some scholars think that the way the language is here and the way Jesus responds is that the man who had dropsy, because normally they wouldn't be allowed into such a meal, was actually invited in simply to try to highlight Jesus' unrighteousness. These guys were so prideful, they're actually trying to undermine Jesus out of their skepticism. They want him to mess up. Often pride in us can take the form of our own skepticism and disbelief. Often where we struggle in areas of pride with God, what happens is we look for God to mess up in our lives so we can prove that he really truly isn't who he says he is. The second thing of pride that we see in these men is legalism. Remember, they're strict keepers of the law. They follow it to a T. They're obsessive about it. That's the nature of their sect. And part of that is because they believe that they will gain acceptance, salvation, the ultimate bringing of restoration before God out of their good work and moral purity. And so because of that, they sit in such a way where they create all these secondary laws in order, ultimately, to feel better about themselves. To put on display how they are morally righteous. Often one of the key aspects that you see in Hearts of Pride is a legalism. A certain law and rule keeping that is often used to bolster oneself up while minimizing the others. And finally, the last thing we see in them that shows their pride is their hypocrisy. This is Jesus' favorite word for the Pharisees. He challenges them multiple times as hypocrites, even before this scene. But he doesn't, while he doesn't say it, Jesus highlights the reality in the question that he asks. He says, well, you... You will disregard your law to save your own skin or your own son, but then you'll judge other people by that same law. You see, a heart of pride, somebody that's rooted in their own self-focus and self-righteousness, they will excuse themselves when they mess up, but they do not excuse others when they do. Oftentimes, they will keep the law in such a way to use it to judge someone else while excusing why they don't have to actually follow it. Here's your clearest example. You all do it. I do it. Some of you do it. I do it. My self-admittance. Driving. I'll excuse my speeding, but if you go faster and cut me off, you're wrong. Oh, that's pride. Pride uses the law to bolster our own self-righteousness while comparing and putting people in a separate category so we can feel better about who we are. And pride is deadly. It's a deadly disease, not just to us physically, but ultimately to us spiritually. And what Jesus wants to reveal to these men is the reality of their pride And the aspect that their pride is actually keeping them from experiencing the healing that he wants to bring. One of the crazy things when you read through the Gospels is that Jesus often uses physical healing and physical examples to point to deeper spiritual realities. And I think that's exactly what's going on in the text This aspect of healing this man with dropsy or edema, a physical ailment, in many ways symbolizes the spiritual ailment that these Pharisees are experiencing. Remember, edema is this insatiable or this this holding in of fluids and liquids in the body. But one of the things that marks dropsy or edema is it often contains an insatiable thirst and hunger that doesn't actually satisfy. So you keep feeding yourself fluids even though your body doesn't know how to distribute and deal with them, but you never actually experience a quenching of your thirst. And so you bloat up, right? Your body is swollen. When we live in such a way where we support our lives based on our own self-righteousness, our own self-worth, a full focus on self, we experience spiritual. Anima. Think of it. When someone is prideful, when they're arrogant, when they're full of themselves, what do we say? Oh, I just ruined my joke. (laughs) What do we say? We say they're full of themselves. Right? Spiritual pride causes us to fill up on self. It causes us to make ourselves the focus of our lives to make everything about me. And listen, that can take many forms. That's the dangerous part about it. It's not just the most boastful amongst us that experience pride. Sometimes the most downtrodden people are prideful because all they can see is themselves. That's all their lives are consumed with. But the problem is when we fill up our lives on ourselves, Whatever that is, whether it's our consumption, whether it's our achievements, whether it's our pain, whether it's our experience, we're left in a place where we're never satisfied. So what do we do? We look to fill ourselves with more of ourselves, and we become swollen in our souls with ourselves. But the problem is, when that happens, we stop looking to Jesus, We don't actually then find the healing that we need. Our spiritual dropsy leaves us unsatisfied, but even worse, it keeps us from seeing the need for a savior. Some people's greatest need is simply to see their need. And that's this group. They are so self-righteous, so self-focused that even when the Savior of the world is in front of them, healing a man of a physical condition, they're left silent, unexcited, unrepentant because they are so full of pride. And Jesus shows it and puts it on display. But if you thought that was uncomfortable, He takes it to the next level in the next section and makes it even more uncomfortable, not just for the Pharisees, but for everyone. Look what he says in verse 7. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, he just, keep going here for a second. He's just challenged the group, but now he laser focuses in to the host. Look what he says in 12. He also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Now here's the key praise. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Two things that I think Jesus wants us to see out of his challenge both to the group and ultimately to his host. The first thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that while pride keeps us from enjoying Jesus, humility allows us to receive and enjoy Jesus. The parable that Jesus gives is fairly straightforward. When you come to a wedding feast, don't go sit in the place of honor, lest you get embarrassed and moved, sit in the least space and get moved up and in some ways we can all relate to that weddings in jesus's day were similar to weddings in our day guests would have been invited and they would have sat them in accordance of their relationship their significance to the married couple and the family you know this is what we do in our day I mean, I remember when I got married, we spent hours agonizing over who's sitting where and who's sitting next to who and who's getting this table and who's getting that table. Like, this is what we do. Now, imagine, to put in our, our, our context, imagine the embarrassment if you showed up at a friend's wedding and you walked into the reception hall, right? And, and there was one of those, like, cute, kitschy little Pinterest boards that have everyone's tag, and you know, I thankfully got married before Pinterest, so that's what, we had centerpieces and we had food, so I I pray for the soul of the rest of you that have to figure out how to navigate today, right, but you walk in, it's cute, whatever, you see your name, you grab the tag, you see the one on there, and you immediately think, oh, yes, of course, I know this couple, why wouldn't they see me at the first table? So you go, you walk down, you sit down, you grab your seat, the party's starting, things are getting involved. Pretty soon, somebody comes around and they say, um, I think you're in my seat. And you're like, uh, I, I think you might be wrong. <laughs> Finally, they have to get the host. They come over, they're like, actually, you're in the wrong seat. Your table doesn't say one. Your table says 41 and that table actually isn't in this room. It's in the adjacent room where you can't even see the bridal party. So you need to go sit there, right? You can imagine how embarrassing that might be. Likewise, it can you imagine the honor if you went to a wedding, you walked in, you assume, I don't know if I know the right people on this couple. I'm just going to go grab a seat in the back and I'm just going to eat dinner. And at some point the groom himself comes over to you and says, "Hey, like, you're really important to me. I don't want you sitting in the back corner. I've actually got a spot up for you right next to the wedding party. Come sit up there with me. Like, you would feel honored if that happened. That's essentially the parable Jesus is trying to help us understand. But the parable is not just in relation to how we practice our lives or attend a wedding. Jesus is actually pointing to a much bigger issue, which is how do we relate to him, Do we relate to him and his call and his kingdom with humility? Or do we relate to him with pride? The point that Jesus makes out of the parable in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself... Will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then its corresponding connection with what he says about being repaid at the resurrection of the just help us to realize that the parable that Jesus is telling is not just teaching you a good principle for life, it's actually challenging you to consider the deepest reality of how you respond to who he is and what he's bringing to bear on the world. Let me help you understand why this is so significant. So, in order to understand, You got to understand a little bit of the Jewish mindset going into this. And we we talked about this a little bit last week, but one of the realities that's in the Old Testament and the prophets was that when the Messiah came, he would come to usher in God's kingdom, to restore the earth back to the way God had intended for it, to deal with God's enemies, to deal with the brokenness and sin, to deal with death, and to bring restoration. And one of the marks of the arrival of God's kingdom was a great feast. In the Old Testament, it's pictured as a wedding feast, a marriage feast in which people would gather to celebrate and enter in and be completely filled up. And that this is what ultimately the Messiah was going to bring. You can think of it this way. This is how the Jews thought of life in Jesus's day. And you see this in the Old Testament. They believed that what they currently lived in was the present age. And I'm going to show you a diagram to help you. You can excuse my, my terrible diagramming nature, right? So they believed that they lived in the present age, but with all the mess that the present age is, but there was going to come a moment. In the Old Testament, they referred to it as the day of the Lord. There was going to come a time where God would send his Messiah to usher in the age to come, the age of God's kingdom, the age of restoration and salvation. This is how they Thought of life. So they were going to travel. At some point, the Messiah was going to show up. He was going to rescue him from Rome, restore the earth, deal with God's enemies into the age of the come and the kingdom of God. Jesus comes. And him and his apostles begin to teach a different understanding of the way in which God is going to work in history. And when you look at the New Testament, you see that they actually understand that instead of it being the age break new age, that God had actually designed that there would be an overlap of the ages before the age to come. So here's my crude drawing of it, right? Their understanding and Jesus' understanding was that we live in the present of age until God sends his Messiah to inaugurate the beginning of God's kingdom, which Jesus proclaimed was himself. This is why Jesus begins his ministry with the words, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. I'm the kingdom. I'm the king who's bringing the kingdom. And he begins the age age that is to come. And it overlaps with this present age until the time when he will return and he will consummate his work to fully bring the kingdom into this world world, where God's kingdom will be fully realized. The Bible refers to this as the new heavens and the new earth, new creation, that that's what's to come. And so what we see in Jesus is there's a time between both his first coming, where he comes as a human being, lives, dies, rises, ascended, and his second coming. That age, the Bible refers to as the last days. And what happens in that age, and we see in the Old Testament, is that the news of the Messiah is meant to go out to all the world and invite them to join the marriage feast of the king, of the messianic lamb. That it begins in Jerusalem and with the Jews, and then it's going to spread to every nation to invite them in to receive the invitation to join God in his kingdom and his marriage with his people. Now, why do I explain all that? You're like, oh, that's a lot, right? What Jesus is trying to highlight is that what is happening now in our response to the way we live in light of the kingdom will expose how we ultimately are going to experience the final bringing of God's kingdom and salvation in Jesus. One of the things that Jesus highlights throughout the Gospel of Luke is that God's kingdom, God's world, His creation, is actually upside down from the way our world is. That it does not follow the world's values or the world's system. Some theologians refer to this in the Gospel of Luke as the great reversal. And the idea is when Jesus comes to consummate his kingdom, he's going to turn the world upside down. Actually, he's going to turn it right side up the way God originally intended it, where justice and righteousness and equality and goodness and life and flourishing are brought to bear. So what Jesus wants to see is the way we live in light of the coming of God's kingdom shows us... How we respond to and receive the reality of Jesus and the salvation that he brings. And one of the marks of that kingdom is humility. And humility allows us to experience the salvation that God comes to bring. We see this, right? That's Jesus' point in verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself, what's the next phrase? Will be humbled. Meaning they're not going to become humbled now. They're going to be humbled one day. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. There's the reversal. And so the question is, when it comes to Jesus, do you live with humility or do you live with Exaltation. Jesus continues to challenge those who live in pride, those who put themselves at the front of the line, those who think of themselves more highly than they should, those who pursue the values of the world. And he basically says, Hey, there's going to come a day that if you think that you sit at the head of the table, when Jesus comes in his kingdom, you're going to be moved to the last spot. And if you're in the last spot, if you've humbled yourself, if you've submitted yourself under God's way, you will be exalted in that day. I mean, Jesus teaches this all over the place if you look through the gospel of Luke. I'll give you one, just so you can hear his poignant words about this idea of reversal. Let it challenge our hearts. This is what he says in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 20, or I mean Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And listen to the flip he does here. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich." For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Do you hear what Jesus says, man? If you're my disciple, listen. You're going to be poor. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be lame. You're going to be bummed out. You're going to be persecuted. But you're going to be blessed because when God shows up, you're going to get the blessing. And if you're not, if you put yourself in the front of the line, if you're full now, you're rich, you're wealthy, you're satisfied, you're awesome, you're the man, you've got it all together, everyone else sucks, and you're cool, but when God shows up, guess what? You're going to be humbled. You're put at the back of the line, not the front. And what Jesus wants us to realize is the way in which you experience the blessing of the kingdom of God is by embracing Humility. And you have the opportunity to do that now before I show up for the feast. That's the point. Humble yourself, Pharisees. Stop counting on your self-righteousness. Release your self-focus. Put yourself in the last spot. Followers of Jesus should always seek the bottom because we know one day God will lift us to the top. And that's Jesus' point. You cannot experience the blessing of the kingdom to come unless you embrace the path of humility now. And this is the example he set. I mean, he's going to go from here and enter into Jerusalem in several chapters, and what does he enter in Jerusalem on? A donkey. The king of the universe shows up in Jerusalem on a donkey to die you want to talk about humility. So he does not call you to what he has not already set an example of. That's key. And what happens out of Jesus' is humility? He will be exalted. He will be lifted on high where every knee and every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You see, humility is the path to experience the exaltation of the kingdom. And the question that Jesus wants to challenge us is, when it comes to how you live now, do you live in light of the reversal that is to come? If not, you'll look to elevate yourself in every circumstance, every room, every place, every party, every work, every whatever. But if you do, you'll lower yourself. You'll look for opportunities to serve. You will make yourself less. But the reality is, we don't really like that very much, do we? Like we like prompting ourselves up a little bit. We like to say things or do things that make us look better than others. There's an old story of about a reporter who uh, once asked the celebrated orchestra conductor Leonard Bernstein what was the most difficult instrument to play. Many of maybe have heard that name, if not, he's a well-known composer. And so the the reporter was eager. He asked him, Leonard, what's the most difficult instrument to play? And the, the story goes that to the reporter's surprise, Leonard Bernstein replied without any hesitation whatsoever, second fiddle. He said, I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. You see, the reality is we don't like to be second. But in Jesus' kingdom, we're always second. Because Jesus' kingdom is about the glory of God. It's about his exaltation. Now, the good news of that, listen, the good news of that is when God is primary in our lives, that's where we find our deepest joy. That's where we find our deepest satisfaction. God doesn't ask us to fall into second place as if it's a bummer for us. It's actually exactly what we designed for. But one of the truths that we have to realize is that in the kingdom of God, it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. And that's really hard for some of us to stomach. But the reality is that's exactly the way that we begin to experience the joy of salvation. That's exactly how we get to receive the healing that Jesus wants to bring for our spiritual pride. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord? James 4:10 God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I don't really want the God of the universe opposing me. But he gives grace. When we humble ourselves before him, have you done that? Have you put your faith in Jesus, submitted to him as your king, trusted him as your savior? And if you have, do you live in light of the great reversal that is to come? Do you trust that he will take what is upside down and make it right in your life? Therefore, you don't have to pursue the places of exaltation. You can pursue the places of humility. But this aspect of humility, it not only impacts our lives with the Lord, it impacts the way we live with others as well. And here's the other thing that I want you to see today, and I'll be quick in this last point. Humility, this is my bonus point, So, (laughs) humility leads us to invite the least lost and last to Jesus. While the Pharisees likely invited this man in to challenge Jesus, Jesus uses it as an opportunity to show this is exactly who's invited into the kingdom. That's why he tells him hey, when you give a dinner, don't just invite your friends, don't just invite the people that make you feel better. Don't just invite the people that somehow lift you up and make you look good. No, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind. Jesus reminds us that if we embrace the path of humility, it will affect who's invited to our dinner table. A kingdom community, a life that's humbled under Jesus, will not look to use their life or their table to gain, but to give. They won't use it for reciprocity. I invite you, you invite me, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. But instead, it will use its table, its welcome, its life, to invite in those who others overlook. That's what a kingdom community does. They show the grace and love of God to people that other people wouldn't show. I'll give you one of my favorite examples of this. It happened a few years ago. We were Alicia and I were part of a community of people pursuing the way of Jesus, and um, we would get together every week and, and have dinner together, and then discuss the way of Jesus after. Much like our life groups here, we called a missional community. So our missional community, we get together, we have dinner weekly, we discuss Jesus. So I'll never forget one one time during that with that community of people, um, we had a woman who had kind of come in contact to our community through my wife who had come out of, um, out of being trafficked sexually. And uh, Alicia's worked for years in that area. And So this woman had contact through her with our community, and she began coming to our family dinners. And she was still in the midst of all of the struggle of coming out of that. And in many ways, for people who've lived that horrendous of a life, there's a long work and struggles of addiction and falling back and all of this that she was in the midst of. But she, she just began to join us for dinner and to, and to eat with us. Sorry to get emotional, I just remember the story stirred me up this morning. But and we would eat dinner together and she would sit with us. And I mean, this is a woman that most of us, if we saw her on the street or at a gas station or at a store, like we would look the other way. But she started to become part of our, our community. And I'll never forget one, one week, um, some people in our community found out that as an adult, she had never had her birthday celebrated. I mean, think about that. Never having your life celebrated. And so they decided one night for our family dinner to throw her a birthday party. And it wasn't extravagant. We got her a cake. We set up some balloons, I think, in our living room. And we ate dinner that night as a family. And we sang happy birthday to her. And and I'll never forget, like, Sitting in that room after that night, I just, there was a part of me that just thought, like, I think this is what the kingdom of God is meant to look like. Like, it throws parties for trafficking survivors, it loves people that are overlooked. It doesn't look at the world or people and say, What can I get from you? It looks and says, How can I love you? How can I show you the incredible grace and love of God? Because isn't that the reality of what God's done for us in the gospel of Jesus? That God looked at each one of us, though friends, let's be honest, we're the last, least, and lost. We're not at the front of the line. I mean, you and I, we're spiritually poor, crippled by our sin, lame in our guilt and shame, and blind to our spiritual desperation. And yet, God invited us in. His son came, humbled himself to taking on human flesh, living among sinful people and ultimately dying at the hands of sinful men so that we could be welcomed to his party. God loves you and saves you because, listen, he doesn't love you and save you because of what you can give to him. There is no reciprocity in the kingdom of God. You have nothing to offer. You're a mess. And yet, He loves you. Period. He's not asking for something back. He's not scratching your back so somehow you'll scratch His. No, He gives Himself fully to you out of love and grace. He humbles himself, and then he invites you to follow his path of humility. The call to humility and to live a life is not in some way because we have to repay God back. It's because it's the way in which his kingdom comes to our lives and to our world. He's already shown us the example. Our job is just to follow it. So who needs to be invited to your table this week? Who needs to be shown the grace of God in your life? Who needs a party? Because no one's thrown them in? Humility will cause us to look for all those opportunities and to embrace them the way God's embraced us. I pray that we...